2: Okay, City Limits, and we're on the third Wednesday of the month. We're going to be talking housing today, and we've got Howard Marozzi from Friends of uh, Public Housing coming onto the program as usual, and also Shane McGrath today, back from a bit of a break, I think. And he, of course, is from the Housing for the Aged Action Group. I'm Kevin Healy. We've got Meg Kimber in there. Um, We've got Karina... And we've got Zeb Peek, who uh, probably you won't hear, but she's tuning in today with the program and she she's hopefully going to become a regular on this program. She's got pretty good qualifications in uh, planning and in transport and all sorts of things. I think she'll be an invaluable addition. So, um, Zeb, I won't ask you to say thank you, but welcome to the program. Meg, you're, um, you're well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Good morning, Kevin. Yeah, really exciting that Zeb's here with us today. Yep. Imagine that in the middle of... The middle of a lockdown, the middle of a pandemic, somehow, C Limit still has the the pull. We
2: expand. That's right. Oh, we haven't done this. Hang on, just one second, I'll just pull a bit of tea. No, that's a green tea today. Last week, we had that interview, which I think was very good, because, not because of the interviewer, but because of the interviewee, but Tommy Watson, one of the people who was on the Westgate Bridge when it came down or was working on the site. Yeah. And incredibly, the next morning, the actual day, uh, the Herald Sun had a full page article about it, including an interview with Tommy Watson, Mm. and that night Channel 9 had a piece, I'd never watched Channel 9, but I just fluked seeing it in a teleguide thing and watched it, and it was a very good coverage by their standards, by commercial television standards, but I was interested in the fact that the Herald Sun, in an editorial the same day said that this was the start, this was an important point when unions increased their fight for safe working conditions. Now, I think unions have always fought for safe working conditions. I don't think that's absolutely true. But it's also interesting that the Herald Sun suddenly takes an interest in safe working conditions when, as far as construction workers are concerned, and workers generally, if they actually take action over those issues, the Herald Sun attacks them,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: but I just thought that was definitely worth mentioning.
1: Very interesting.
2: Yeah, yes.
1: Do you think that this has got more coverage this time around than it does other years?
2: Oh, it never gets another year's but just this was the fiftieth anniversary and that's why I mean it Yeah, it's, okay. It's it's the fact that it's fifty years. Uh, and and from the last time we had a fiftieth anniversary, Meg, it's nineteen seventy, by the way, is the difference the time, the date.
1: Thank you. Yep.
2: That's all right, that's what i would that. <laughs> <laughs> but on industrial health and safety... A report came out in the past week that more than, because uh, we hear about hospital and medical workers coming down with COVID, but yeah. more than 170 non-clinical workers from hospitals, clinics and other healthcare settings have been hit by COVID. The previously hidden toll on the wider health system workforce includes 160 cleaners who have been the front line in limiting infections for others in the pandemic. And um, 36 worked in hospitals, 122 were employed in other areas of the healthcare system and the workplace of two others was not recorded etc. But these people are thrown into this day after day and yeah. you know we hear about health workers generally but of course it's the other people in the health system like the cleaners who are also going to work and copying it because they are going to work.
1: It's a good point point. it's not discussed as much and the other thing about just not even just the obvious health risk of getting COVID but also The impact on people's family and personal lives, because if you're working in an industry that's a high risk place where you're in contact with people who have COVID, then you actually can't just, even though we're allowed, most of us here are allowed to go for a walk with a friend and obviously restrictions are easing, but those restrictions are not going to ease for people who are working in those high risk industries.
2: No, and you've got you know you've got to go home to other people who, as I say, you're in that high risk area. In fact, I yeah. read this week where one one aged care owner is trying to encourage workers to actually stay on site rather than go home. Wow, um, not sure that's suitable though in terms of their family life. But that's one of the things they're yeah. talking about for that very reason. And when they if they're in a high risk area, then when they go home, they they're spreading it more. They could spread it if they've got it, of course.
1: Yeah. I know some individuals have chosen to do that. You know,
2: yeah. I
1: don't know any personally, but it's been reported that people have said, I'm going to sleep at the, like at the hospital or something like that, rather than go back to family.
2: Yeah. Well, it's an ongoing problem, unfortunately. And mm. again, on, on health and safety, I found this one interesting because a worker died at a building site at Curtin University in Perth last week, mm-hmm. falling through a roof. Show a glass ceiling crashed, and one worker was killed. A couple more injured, but the response from Curtin University was interesting. I thought the, all they said was the collapse occurred at a building site, and no students or staff were involved in the incident. And I thought, well, that's all very wow. good, but the fact was a, a young a young worker was killed. Yeah, and I would have thought something a little more compassionate than that might have helped.
1: Yes, indeed. And, you know, on the anniversary of the Westgate Bridge collapse, uh, another life lost in, in building is very sad.
2: Well, they keep getting building. Well, we mentioned last week that the, the workers went on strike when they went back eventually. They, the boss refused to employ the shop steward, and so they went on strike for nine weeks to get the shop steward reinstated. Well, today, they'd all be jailed or fined millions for taking that strike action. We made the point that in many ways, industrial relations have gone backwards since then. Yes, but also this is just an interesting one. Lyle Stranby is the chief executive at Melbourne Airport and we know of course the airports were privatized some years ago by government and they now rip off big time. But they're pretty upset because obviously the number of passengers going through has dropped dramatically, so their profits have dropped dramatically. But Lyle doesn't care about the profits. He's up he cares about us. He said We've heard the messages from government around the country that they want to see Australia celebrate as normal a Christmas as possible. And he's concerned that most Victorians would be unable to see interstate loved ones over the holidays. So that's all he cares about and nothing yeah. to do with his profits at all that he wants. <laughs> he wants the government to ease restrictions and allow planes to go back to flying as normal.
1: Yeah. Isn't that sweet? That's lovely of him what a lovely
2: man lyle and speaking of lovely men alan jones the um, sydney shock jock who recently retired from there but he's still of course on murdoch's fox television channel but i found this one interesting we won't say any more than that but he's 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 suing the sbs program the feed for defamation no. Yeah, Alan Jones, he's suing them for defamation. But this is the bit I liked, and we won't comment on it other than say we'll wait for the evidence to be produced in the hearing. But he said they defamed him by portraying him as a racist, a misogynist, a liar, and a pedophile. Hmm. So without saying any more, I think we'll we'll look forward to the hearing and see what comes out.
1: Yeah, that would be really interesting to see. Definitely not going to comment on that.
2: No, we're not. <laughs> That's all. But just Yeah,
1: speaking of Murdoch, have you heard... This is like, I just heard this word of mouth. Someone was saying something that Murdoch had said that he was uh, not happy with Trump. Have, has anyone else said that? Or I'm just making it
2: up. He said he wasn't happy with Trump before supporting Trump.
1: Okay. Okay. So it might not translate into actually...
2: Yeah. Yeah. He said unless it's, unless it's recently, I missed it, but he, he did say he was opposed to Trump, and then suddenly in the last election, he or the, the election when Trump got elected, he mm. he switched and be, and supported him. So.
1: Well, it's it's recent. It's in the last three days or so, or the last within the last week. Murdoch predicts landslide Biden victory, which you know predicts or slash engineers. Yeah. And the news has come out that the relationship with Trump between Trump and Murdoch has soured.
2: Oh, well, maybe he's realised the writing's on the wall and he wants to get in with Biden then.
1: Could do. I didn't pick that
2: up, but maybe, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, Kevin Rudd, the only time Labor's won in the last 20 years, that's an exaggeration, but was when Kevin Rudd got the approval, the handshake.
2: That's right, Lord Rupert. Yeah. It's very good. He's a lord, he's an American citizen, and he was born in Australia.
1: (laughs) We're proud of our son, yeah.
2: That's right. Man of the universe. Man of the people. A headline last week in the financial review I found interesting because I looked at it and thought, oh, that's good. It, it's, it's The headline is Australia races to resettle refugees. And I thought, what would you think?
1: I would think, oh, that's great. Getting everybody out of detention. Yep.
2: Yep. And into Australia. Yep. Yep. Except that's not the case. We're rushing to move refugees to the U.S. before the election. This was the deal they did with Obama, of course, and which Trump was upset about, but they've tended to. A lot of refugees have been sent to America, but there's still a hell of a lot. Mm -hmm. And they reckon that even if they don't, you know, whatever they're trying to do, there still could be up to 350 people in PNG and on Nauru after this is all sorted out so we're yeah. still refusing to bring them to Australia which is bloody dreadful
1: yeah it's so long
2: oh it's absolutely wrong and these the, the 350 people some of them have been there for years and years it's just yeah well it, it's unspeakable it's outrageous
1: well it's been four years just since that well, it must be five or more years since just since that deal
2: was struck yeah well it's it's well Trump's been there but in almost four years now, and it was mm-hmm. yeah, so it's four or five years yeah. which
1: was proposed to be a solution to the basically indefinite detention, so obviously not a not a fast moving solution
2: but they're still there though there's some chance they might take up the offer from New Zealand and send some people there because he did a deal. Morrison did a deal with Jackie Lambie because they want to get rid of the act, the Medivac laws which allow people with medical problems to come here, to be able to get here, speeding up mm-hmm. their bringing them to Australia. Mm. And as part of that deal, he said he could clear the way to take up the Jacinda Ardern's offer. And of course, things yeah. she won at the weekend, that still holds and won yeah. spectacularly, in fact.
1: Yeah, she did in the landslide.
2: Yeah. O- on that point, a mob called Ads Up USA, which is a, a refugee support group over there, a bloke called Ben Windsor from that group, commenting on Australia's so-called rush to resettle, says the end of the US deal would leave remaining detainees without a pathway out of detention. The Australian taxpayer will be back on the hook for the cost of their indefinite detention and the government will be entering the eighth year of this humanitarian disaster with no solution, which is not a bad summary of what Australia is about.
1: Good summary. And, of course, one of the most famous... Uh, detainees was Boris Buchani who's now living in New Zealand and has uh, the right to stay there. Yes. Yeah.
2: And he wrote that wonderful book of course about his experiences.
1: Mhm. No Friend But the Mountains.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: I, it won one of the Australian writing prizes so
2: yeah. Yeah he won, he won one of the major awards. Mm. Miles Franklin or one of those, I can't think which that mm. year.
1: Hey, um bit of housing news in The Guardian recently, Kevin, did you see that Greg Jericho wrote an article saying more social housing is the obvious answer to more than one question? And guess what the other question
2: is? Um, no, I, I, you put me on the spot now. I've got no idea.
1: Yes, I have. I've turned the tables. Go, yeah. Be prepared. Um, it's that uh, the construction <laughs> sector needs more work.
2: Oh yes, it certainly does. I, I've got some of that stuff set aside if we get round to it in the housing mm. segment, but you're right, mm-hmm. it, it does. And they want the home builder program to be extended so they can have more, more construction.
1: Well, Greg's arguing that public housing would be a good way to, uh, to give construction industry a bit of a boost.
2: It does seem totally logical if you think well you need to have need to you know develop construction jobs mm-hmm. encourage construction then building public housing would seem to be the most ideal way of doing it. Yeah. But- They can't seem to work that one out. It's just a bit difficult for them, apparently. (laughs) It's
1: a bit tricky.
2: Meg, on um, Monday morning Mm. on Radio National, Mark Dreyfus, the ALP Attorney General, Shadow Attorney General, was interviewed talking about the government's well it's still waiting for it but the government's anti corruption body, whatever they're going to call it, uh-huh. uh, saying it's really going to have no teeth anyway. It's it's it can't there's lots of things it can't look at, plus it can't be retrospective. So we talked a few weeks ago about the government spending thirty million on a land worth three million and in fact uh-huh. it's leased it back to the people it gave the thirty million to at a valuation of less than one million. Uh-huh. But it couldn't it couldn't even look at that. And in Victoria, the anti-corruption commissioner, Robert Redlich, is saying he he won't be able to do all the work he should do unless the government increases funding for that body here, the, mm. the corruption body here in Victoria. So I know you have an interest in these things, so comment on all this stuff.
1: Yeah. The federal the proposal from the federal government about what ty- type of integrity commission they're going to propose has always been what people call toothless, I guess, like a, a commission without any bite. Actually, interestingly, the model that is suggested to be the best model is the New South Wales Anti-Corruption Commission, so I don't know. Have you? But you've been following this news about the um, the land and everything. Is that being investigated by their uh, corruption body?
2: No, it's not. Because, uh, but it's there is a body investigating it. There's, um, I think, maybe a senate inquiry or whatever. They're they're certainly looking at it, and it's coming up this week, in fact, to have something. But uh, but it, the point being that it, you know the the body of the government wants to set up wouldn't even be able to handle it because it can't be yeah. retrospective, which is pretty stupid. Yes. But we'll keep an eye on that one.
1: Yeah, because um, uh, when, when you see what's happening on, at the state level in terms of these investigative bodies, depending on the power and authority that they do have, the things that are coming out are, are pretty terrible. And, and then you see the occurrences of what looks like inappropriate use of funds and sending funding to certain areas where, where people are seeking votes. These are all the kinds of things that could be investigated more with more in a more thorough way. And uh, so you add that all up and the fact that they don't want to make a body that has any real authority or power uh, looks very suspicious.
2: Yeah, you'd wonder why, wouldn't you, other than maybe they do want to avoid <laughs> genuine, interrogation. genuine yeah. investigation? That, the yeah. only, that seems to be, again, the most logical explanation of why they don't want it yep. uh, or why they want it to if they have one that can't do much anyway. Yeah. Now, the Commonwealth Bank, this Commonwealth Bank, of course, the Commonwealth in Commonwealth Bank is because it was owned by the Commonwealth. We all owned the bank until it was privatised. But it's now joined the long list of, uh, of companies around the place who've inadvertently underpaid workers. In fact, it's suggested they owe $53 million in underpayments. But what they've done, they use individual agreements on a, well, it says here they've used them on a massive scale over the past decade to exclude employees from a wide range of conditions in union collective agreements. The bank has almost 15,000 workers on individual flexibility arrangements, IFAs, far more than any employer as part of deals that scrap rostered days off, overtime pay, annual leave loading, guaranteed pay increases, maximum hours and other enterprise agreement entitlements in return for a higher salary and bonus. But the bank failed to proper as usual with these things, the difference, they, the higher salary and bonus doesn't compensate for all the things you're in the award, and now but it's been investigated, as I say, they reckon they owe workers about 53 million in underpayments. And in the same week, last week, the ACTU agreed as part of a bit of a compromise in these talks they're having with the bosses and the government about industrial relations and, and what needs to follow after COVID. Uh, bosses who inadvertently underpay their workers then discover the error would be able to pay them back without penalty or illegal process under a concession by the ACTU. Now, I'm prepared to bet that and well we know anyway that hundred percent of underpayments are inadvertent as we know. We just <laughs> we just can't work out we just can't work out the mathematics of how come there's never any inadvertent overpayments that you know it no. ought to be 50-50, but somehow it's a hundred naught. But I'm prepared to bet that there won't be one employer who gets strung and doesn't declare it was inadvertent. Do you think they'll be they'll own up and say, "Oh, hang on, we there is this inadvertent clause, but we didn't do it. We did it deliberately."
1: Mm. Yeah, you're uh, you know your odds, Kevin. I trust your judgment on that. I would agree with that.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, the the odds that if I could get those odds every time I wanted to have a pet I'd be <laughs> going. I'd be a rich man.
1: Yes, you would. <laughs> What's the union for the banks? Do you know? What which union represents bank workers?
2: Uh, maybe the Australian Services Union these days. There was the Australian really? Banking Association and it was one yeah. of the first it was one of the first white collar unions to, to have a quite progressive secretary and in fact yeah. and in fact be quite progressive industrially. The banking the bank I think it was called the Australian Bankers Association, or whatever it was but it was uh Bloke called Williams was the secretary many years ago, and mm. they've been absorbed into something now, I guess. So they it may well be maybe. the Australian Services Union, one of those unions. Yes,
1: maybe it's the finance sector union.
2: Um, yes, that's not a bad point. <laughs> <laughs> now you mention it, <laughs> I agree with him. In fact, if I read on it in this article, it might even tell me. But um. <laughs> Oh, it is Finance Sector Union. Yes, Finance Sector Union. You're absolutely correct.
1: One point for me. Kevin, actually, uh, Howard is here, so we might take a break. And anyone who's just tuned in, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR. And you can also get information about our show at 3cr.org.au slash City Limits.
0: Subscribe. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe everyone.
2: Okay, back on city limits and uh, it's housing day and we've got Howard Morozzi from Friends of Public Housing with us. And Howard, um, I know you always have a number of items you want to talk about, so, so fire away.
0: Great. Okay, we've got the local council elections coming up, uh, I think it's this Saturday. So um, Friends of Public Housing Victoria has um, actually written to a number of candidates asking for their position on the whole debate on public housing versus social housing, etc. Well, Of course, everyone that's written back has said that they support public housing, but there are a number of them that aren't familiar with the detail of the issues involved. So that's been a good initiative from Friends of Public Housing. In terms of educating the candidates, and hopefully we're going to get some debate because there's a very big issue coming up in local council, um, and that is what should a local council do to support public housing? So we know that local councillors should be advocating, but what happens when it comes to um, actually offering local council surplus land, for example? Um, should that be public housing? I mean, we obviously we say it should be, but what happens if the State Government won't accept it? If the State Government says, no, we're not going to take your land for public housing, what happens then? So what's happened is a few things have happened. Firstly, there's 13 southern and eastern local councils that have gotten together to make a statement that they're calling for social housing to end homelessness. So we would like to see them as a first step say, you know, we call for public housing because that's the most effective way to end homelessness and that community housing doesn't provide an effective way to end homelessness, but... The way they went about it was actually effectively going to determine the outcome in favour of social housing because they commissioned through the Council of Homeless Persons, which is um, a group which supports uh, social housing. So that report then you know, obviously made claims that uh, housing is important to solve homelessness and you should do it through social housing so that's effectively led to them coming up with three commitments so they're saying they're going to work in partnership with federal and state government the public and private sector to deliver social housing to um, repurpose land within the local council area for adaptable housing whatever that means that's a new one i haven't heard that one before and advocate for inclusive housing growth through mandatory inclusionary zoning so again Inclusionary zoning can potentially be public housing, but they're just talking social housing for that. There's been a number of the uh, broader groups involved, the Eastern Affordable Housing Alliance, Municipal Association of Victoria, and the DHHS has been involved as well. So obviously, you know, it's another indictment on the government to be involved in that and not make a commitment to public housing. They got a homelessness advocate involved I'm almost certain they wouldn't have got the Homeless Persons Union involved because they would have been told what the problem was with their report. So that's one group. Now, Victorian socialists have made a statement in relation to what the City of Melbourne has done. So they've claimed that the uh, City of Melbourne has unanimously supported the public housing renewal program, which we know is a form of privatisation of public housing. So they've pointed out that uh, Nicholas Rees is an ALP member, councillor, and Sally Kappa, CEO, is a former property council CEO. But they've also pointed out that it was seconded by Greens councillor, Rowan Leppert. So they pointed the Victorian socialists have pointed out that they gave their second preferences to the Greens after they were assured that they were going to oppose the uh, privatisation of public housing in Melbourne. So the Victorian socialists have given a very unequivocal commitment uh, very solid commitment to um, public housing and they've criticised the Greens. So I communicated with Rowan Leppert and had a discussion, if you want to call it that. You can go to his Facebook page and have a look at the discussion. So he denies that they supported the public housing renewal program and then he pointed to their policy, which was uh, called Homes for Everyone and claims that that's 100% support for the uh I was 100% opposition to the public housing renewal program. When you, look at the, uh, when you look at the policy, it actually only makes one commitment to public housing in the city of Melbourne, the Greens. And that is to, to rewrite the Arden Structure Plan, which is in North Melbourne. I think it's near the new railway station the government's building in North Melbourne. And they want to work with the state government to build nearly 1,000 public housing units in that plan. And all the other things that they've committed to in the Melbourne City Council, the Greens, is actually about facilitating affordable housing or social housing. So anyway, so I, I took him up on that point and he claims they can't do anything more. So that's something we're going to keep discussing because obviously we're very disappointed.
2: Well, just to clarify that though, I mean, if the, if the socialists say he voted that way and he says it's not their policy, what did he do? Did he vote with it or not? Do you know?
0: Yeah, well the thing is, he claims that the actual motion that was voted on wasn't actually directly on the Public Housing your uh, program. It was about um, something to do with planning uh, on the site and not actually about ownership of it. So it's a bit of a convoluted kind of argument and I need to see exactly what the motion was to know if he's actually giving a proper representation of what the issue is, particularly given you know, the discussion last night. Because it might just be a politician's answer or it might be a might be a fair answer. So, I don't want to I don't want to abandon the Greens because they have given us very good support mm. and they've got yeah. very good state policy. But what I'm saying is that how it translates into the local council debate is tricky, and we need to look into it further and see what's legally possible and what's legally effective, and then what's what can translate reasonably into political action. So anyway, that's that's a debate which we're going to. Continue and hopefully we'll come back next month or a bit later, and uh, be able to comment a bit more accurately about that. So, L- Labour candidates have taken up the Labour for Housing pro forma local council pledge, uh, which is uh, it's very vague and it actually it's about really about social housing and not about public housing. And again, Labour for Housing seems to be a really a conduit for diverting. Activists away from supporting public housing. They've actually put up a, a letter for their members to write to uh, the Treasurer Tim Palace, again calling on social housing and not talking about stopping the giveaway of public housing to the community housing sector. So, in other words, it talks about new public and community housing dwellings. So, it doesn't say how many public housing, how many community housing. So, it's really a very wide Kind of door which the state government can walk through to say, yeah, we're fulfilling the pledge by building community housing, even though they're not going to build public housing and they're getting give away public housing. Um, so it's you know it's fairly obviously a uh, misleading campaign developed by the ALP to uh, divert their activists away from supporting public housing campaigns. Then actually, just to go back to the the local council debate, the, the Age actually published a long article earlier this month about the Greens' plan for affordable housing, uh, which I think was pretty much in line with what I just described before about Rowan Leopard. and and the Greens are actually spruking their campaign as a commitment that's going to help end, end homelessness, and it involves a lot of construction of a lot of, uh, a lot of units, and it involves inclusionary zoning for social housing, but again, not for public housing. Whereas on the other hand, Victorian socialists have actually made a commitment to use inclusory zoning for public housing. So, you know, we're thinking, well, if the socialists can do it, well, it then begs the question as to why the Greens can't do it. So the other form of discussion for the housing issue has been the budget. The federal budget didn't actually include anything for housing at all which was disappointing because there's been a massive amount of money made available for various sectors, including $10 billion for um, the construction industry. So you would have thought that the federal government could have found a bit of money for public housing. They haven't even been provided for, social, for uh, community housing through the budget. So uh, The Age again has published various articles in response to the um, budget uh, only talking about affordable housing and social housing, not talking about public housing. They quoted a Melbourne Uni economist, Professor Lisa Cameron, talking about social housing. Again, an unmissed opportunity. Another academic not talking about public housing. Crikey published an article as well, just talking about social housing in the budget. Uh, Adam Bant put something on Facebook saying, Where's the commitment to social housing in the budget? Not talking about public housing. So again, the, the debate seems to be swamped by the use of the word social housing, which reinforces why it's so important for us to uh, keep going back to talk about the actual wording yeah. uh, and not let the debate get um, carried away yeah. by the opponent of public housing.
1: Uh, it's a good summary, Howard. So you, Friends of Public Housing obviously reached out to. This is initially you were talking about the council elections, and Friends of Public Housing reached out to the different um, groups that are involved. And it sounds like you heard back from the Socialists and the Greens and you've had a look at the Labor policy, but did Labor actually get back to you about it? And I'm assuming the Liberals didn't.
0: Uh, I don't think Labor got got back to I'm not even sure if Friends of Public Housing wrote to Labor. Okay. I think it might have been just a waste of time. Yep. They might have, but I don't think they've actually had any responses from them. So, and
1: we've also just been joined by Shane McGrath from Housing for the Aged Action Group. Thanks for joining us, Shane. Any comment on what we've been discussing?
3: Uh, thanks for having me. Well, I guess I moved to the city of Melbourne uh, over the last few months, so I was happy to actually be able to cast a vote in or to hear you talking about the uh, the election I'll actually be casting a vote in. <laughs> yeah, I was happy to cast a vote for the socialists, not only because they have great housing policies, but also because uh, Daniel, who I think is the, the candidate for deputy mayor, uh, used to train at my gym, and that was uh, just as important a consideration uh, not to be too <laughs> superficial about these things.
1: <laughs> He'll have to go to a lot of different gyms to get all the votes. <laughs> That's
2: right. So if Donald Trump trained George your gym, you'd vote for him, would you, Shane? Or uh,
3: I would be so happy for the opportunity to go around with Donald Trump, but I don't, don't really <laughs> see it happening.
2: By the way, Shane McGrath is from the Housing with Ace Action Group. and Shane, just any updates you want to give us from, um, from your, your area?
3: Um, Well, I guess one of the things that's happened for us recently is we launched a couple of reports. We hosted the launch of two reports last week about housing issues for older LGBTI people. So that's an area that hadn't really been discussed so much. There is quite a lot of discussion of the kind of disproportionate effects that homelessness and the risk of homelessness has on queer young people in particular. Um, And that's often constructed as if the problem is that families, you know, disown people, as if the problem is about familial rejection and those sorts of issues. Uh, And what we've found is that older LGBTI people also have a higher risk of homelessness than other parts of the community. And so we see that, you know, it's not just about bad families rejecting people. We're actually talking about structural issues. Structural and systemic issues in society make older LGBTI people also uh, less likely to be securely housed. And I mean, I guess to an extent that's obvious when you think about you know, one of the main ways that people can be securely housed in their older age is to have bought a home. And of course, buying a home is very closely linked to, to marriage, um, historically in Australia, which, of course, was not available to many of us uh, until quite recently. So yeah, some of that research, I, I think, has been really interesting and important, um, and definitely, like, suggests some, some directions for more work.
2: Yeah. Well, on that matter, Molly Hadfield, who died a few years ago, of course, but a great activist with the House of the Age Action Group, she alerted us some years ago, and we did an interview on this program about it, that a lot of aged care facilities were being quite homophobic and not allowing same-sex relationships either to develop or to, to live in the same room in a lot of those facilities. And we did an interview about that at the time. Has that situation improved over the years?
3: Like it's definitely improved, but it's still a big issue. So there are, uh, you know, forms of for accreditation and protocols and things like that for aged care facilities to ensure that they are like safer environments for older LGBTI people. Um, but still, we see a lot of older queer people very worried that they'll have to return to the closet, um, especially in um, faith-based services, which often are at the kind of more affordable end of the spectrum. Uh, yeah, so definitely probably improved since Molly Hadfield uh, was talking to you about it, but still not, not nearly where we'd want it to be.
2: Yeah, it's, well, it's amazing in, in, in today's age, you think, you know, for Christ's sake, uh, there wouldn't be a problem, but obviously there is, yeah. On, those, on reports, there was also a report in the last week or so from AHURI, um, the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, about the renting situation generally. Um, any comment on that report from either of
0: you?
3: You have to have uh, given me some advance notice for this one, I think.
2: <laughs> oh, right.
1: Classic move.
0: <laughs> yeah, Kevin, I haven't seen the report either, but I'd be interested because AHURI does, although they have supported really community housing over public housing. They do provide pretty valuable data, and I've actually referred to them quite a few times. So I wouldn't mind seeing that report. I'll look it up and maybe we'll get back to it next time. But there has been a lot of reports about the renting situation. One of the interesting things was the um, situation in regional Victoria. So the council, the homeless persons, had a look at the uh, Victorian government data and did a report on the situation in regional Victoria. Now, just to note that the state government moratorium on, applies to rental evictions and rents for existing tenants, but they can raise rents you know, when, when the property is vacant, obviously. So that's actually allowed rents to go up. And people are looking for a place to rent. So they'll, they'll find you know, if there's a sufficient demand. Uh, and that's actually what's happened in a lot of regional Victoria. So the DHHS Department of Health and Human Services uh, showed that Mel- although Melbourne's weekly median fell 5% in the June quarter, there was hardly any fall in regional Victoria. And in the year to June, uh, median weekly rent increased by about 3% to $330 in regional Victoria, while it fell 4% in Melbourne to $400. So there's not actually such a big gap anymore between rent in Melbourne and regional Victoria. And it's not actually just a COVID-related thing, it's it's happened over a 10-year period. So Seymour's gone up 67%, Benalla 55%, Castlemaine 50% over 10 years. So that's quite a significant thing for renters. So Shane, can I just ask, have you got any more information about what's happened to um, renters' rights under the state government legislation?
3: Um, there's probably not much by way of update they've extended out the emergency measures which are things like you know the the so called rental ban the the ban on rent increases until march next year um, that also means that the other the, the previous wave of rent reforms that were supposed to have come in by now are also delayed until those emergency measures wind up. I I think I I probably have all the same complaints and critiques that I did last time I banged on about this on this show, so I might not rehash them in too much detail. But I guess our our perspective generally is that the eviction ban hasn't gone nearly far enough. Generally, the the protections are important, but none of them are, are sufficient, I guess, from our perspective.
1: The changes that were going to be made to the Residential Tenancies Act were long overdue from my understanding because the, the Act had been in place for a decade or something. Correct me if I'm wrong.
3: Uh, from 97, I think, yeah.
1: Right. Oh, so really long time. And then they were meant to go into effect from July this year and they've been pushed back. That's right. They'll push back until the 1st of next year and then maybe push back a little bit again but they've got these emergency measures in place, but it seems like these measures that they were going to make were already so far overdue and are now being pushed back even further.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's kind of a hard situation, but it is very disappointing that we haven't had the better protections that we, were, that we were promised that we worked so hard to achieve. Some of them have come in already, like some of those went into effect early, things around pets in particular. Government loves its pet reforms because they're so mediagenic. But the the more important reforms about things like eviction protections and stuff like that, I mean, to an extent, those issues have been um, adequately addressed by the, the temporary measures. You know, we're, we're not going to see uh, people being evicted for, for rent arrears at the moment, unless they're what they call willful, I guess. Mm-hmm. Some of those protections are all right. Some of problems we've seen have come up in the kind of gap or overlap or the ways that there's unintended consequences of particular provisions in the emergency measures that interact weirdly with the regular act most spectacular you remember when these first came out and then the government abruptly realized that actually banned everyone from moving out <laughs> they, they sort of quickly addressed that problem but yeah I mean overall my, my my perspective is that these are important protections like I said but but not sufficient not what we need
0: no, Shane, there haven't been any more cases before VCAT, have there?
3: I mean, there's cases before VCAT all the time. I'm not really aware of any more published decisions, which are the ones that they, you know, set out their reasons for and circulate. But certainly VCAT is continuing to hold eviction hearings and things like that, you know, sometimes with good results for, for tenants and sometimes not.
1: Yeah. And on the other side of uh, having a right to remain in a home and not be evicted, there is also rights to be released from a lease contract Mm -hmm. under conditions of hardship which apart yeah
3: yeah we had a uh, i'm trying to think if i can pop out this case study without its identifying details or if it's too clear we had a case the other week where one of our clients was fully entitled to end her lease early uh and the agent tried to convince her that they would let her out of the lease early if she just agreed to pay half her rent for the next for the remaining 3 months of her contract like you know an aged pensioner they're trying to convince her to pay 800 bucks when what she owes them is zero wow. so you definitely see this the kind of continuing just like scummy scamming by agents who will, will try anything to get a buck out of someone but, but yeah certainly the, the protections about being able to leave or to get out of a contract due to hardship are much better than they've been before um, and anyone who's in that situation where they might need to end a contract early um, it would definitely be worth getting some advice about it from a local tenancy service.
2: Yeah and the, apart from the landlords ripping you off of course The I noticed the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission last week came up Uh, With a report that 99 scams have been happening during COVID. People are using COVID to exploit people. And nationwide, scammers have prized more than 300,000 from tenants, up 76% on a year ago, by offering fake rental properties to dupe them into handing over money or personal data. Victoria's coronavirus-driven ban on physical home inspections could be leaving its tenants more vulnerable, with Deputy Commissioner Delia Rickard revealing con artists were using government restrictions to trick people into transferring money without inspecting properties. In-person inspections are outlawed, etc. Well, that's, that's lifted now. Miss Rickard said scammers were also offering reduced rent due to COVID-19, luring victims by posting ads on real estate or classified websites and targeting people who posted on social social media and it goes on but um, so it appears they're also being ripped off by these con artists as well.
3: Yeah that's very disappointing to hear. I mean that's always been a scam that I think mostly targets international students who often do need to arrange uh, accommodation from overseas but yeah it makes total sense that they can kind of expand that out to the whole population now that nobody can do an inspection in person.
2: Yeah well uh, but that's been lifted now hasn't it, I think in the last Few days.
3: I believe you're right.
2: Yeah. Howard, I want to move on with um, Shane to um, the aged care problems that have been occurring, obviously with you know with with COVID. But did you have any more to say in terms of what you wanted to report on?
0: Oh yeah. Look, always lots more to say. But I can I can come back to that next time if you want.
2: Well, we'll go go on to Shane then, because there was a there was a report um, from the um, Royal Commission, an interim report, which talked about how we're failing. Older people so miserably, and we've seen, uh, you know we've seen the results in nursing homes and aged care facilities with so many dying. And we have also, it's raised the question of uh, of using staff, or well, at least abusing staff in terms of both wages and also uh, the amount of work they have to do and unqualified staff. So, Shane, any comment on all that's been coming out? Because it's been pretty disastrous.
3: Um, I mean nothing in particular. I haven't really been so engaged with the the royal commission. Um, that's that's not really my area. But yeah, I mean we've seen just a, an extraordinary series of outbreaks in federally federally run aged care, or you know, privatised aged care that's under federal responsibility in Victoria. Like so much of the second wave that we're just kind of emerging from, and. Uh, yeah, I really hope that we'll see some meaningful change coming out of the Royal Commission, uh, although how likely the Liberal government is to back away from the privatisation that, that, as you say, has been so disastrous. It's hard to see.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's just, I mean, the numbers of people, is hundreds of uh, older people who've died unnecessarily um, and it does come down again to, unfortunately, privatisation. It does seem that in state-run facilities, the incidents of COVID and the deaths have been much, much less indeed.
1: Mm. And similarly to the situation with uh, security guards, both industries are a space that because of privatisation and the pressures that organisations put on their staff are often employing people who might have English as a second language, might not have been receiving the appropriate training that they should. So this is really, like you said, at the top of the show, Kevin, talking about frontline workers, and we have to include in that workers in the security industry and workers in, in cleaning and working in workers in aged care because the pressures on those workers are, are enormous, especially due to burnout rates already pre, pre-COVID. Um, burnout rates in those industries are very, very high.
3: Yeah, I mean, it connected, of course, to, to insecure work and and low wages that have forced people to take multiple jobs across multiple sites, so yeah. that infections spread more more rapidly. Right. And you know, and, and on the on the other hand, so sorry, we're deviating now pretty hard from the, the housing topic, but also the intense criminalisation that's been the Andrews government's answer to to everything to do with COVID, that's made people even more reluctant in in many cases to acknowledge that they've had to keep going to work. Yeah. You know, if you're a if you're a worker in a public housing tower and you. Get get tested for COVID and, you know, come out positive. Uh, like, there's this evidence that there's a real chance that the police will occupy your block and lock all your neighbours in their rooms. The the intense and brutal police responses to everything, the huge fines, have been such a disincentive for honest and, and accurate reporting that's so important as a public health measure.
2: Yes, and on that question of, of staff, qualified, unqualified, etc. in um, nursing homes, an aged care nurse who wished to remain anonymous said... Where she worked, there was just one assistant in in nursing in charge of 40 high-need residents at night. The only other worker was a registered nurse who was in charge of 100 high-need residents, and she recounted how one night three elderly patients were in desperate need of attention, but she couldn't attend to two of them. I was over the other side with a lady who couldn't breathe and wanted oxygen, she said. So, you know, it's it's pretty dreadful and it, of course, it comes down to the fact also that there's always this vague area between publicly funding but privately owned it's a bit like our public transport system isn't it uh, where these these places are run privately but they depend and keep wanting more and more government funding for them so we there's a real real problem there in terms of who becomes responsible
0: yeah kevin that's the same as, as the situation with community housing government funded but privately run.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's an ongoing problem. Okay, back to you, um, Howard. Anything else you wanted to report on?
0: Yeah, well, I've actually found the report from Ahuri that you were referring to before. i have had a quick look through it. And um, it does make a, a lot of interesting observations about renter's situations. So <clears throat> the main <clears throat> observation that they've found is that 40% of tenants can't afford essentials after paying rent. Uh, because of their reduction in income during COVID, uh, which actually surprises me, because of the extent of availability of um, job keeper and job seeker. But there are gaps to job keeper and job seeker, and you know, in relation to casual workers, so that might be where um, a lot of the poverty's come in. So it was conducted by the University of the research conducted by University of Adelaide mm-hmm. uh, across all Australian states and territories during July and August. So there was even when we had job keeper and job seeker. So um, also mental health effects, although that's not directly. Actually, there were the mental health effects related to having to work from home, apparently, uh, and fairly significant mental health effects overall, which could be related to, you know, would be related to financial matters uh, and financial insecurity. Yeah. Again, so the question is, has the government done enough in relation to housing? And possibly, the answer is possibly not, based on that report. And I might mention, actually, uh, one of one of the uh, mainstream media outlets, surprisingly, which supported public housing recently was uh, Sky News and Alan Jones. So, TGB's Michael McLaren spoke to Alan Jones on Sky News recently and advocated for public housing. Didn't even talk about social housing. So, if Alan Jones can do it, you know, it says a lot. Yeah,
2: I'm just getting off the floor. Hang on a tick, right? What did you just, well, just to put you back on the floor as well, Howard, last week Albanese talked about Home Builder but said if it would make much more sense to use Home Builder to construct than he used the term public housing. Albanese said it.
0: Okay, I missed that one. But I think as he went on, did he start to talk about social housing? Because they normally do that.
2: No, he didn't. But his, his, shadow, his shadow minister did, but he didn't.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's always the qualification, you know, it's always there, uh, down the track, they'll always, you know, diverge off into um, social housing. Uh, also um, a couple of Friends of Public Housing members managed to get on a big Virginia Trioli's back and talk about uh, anti-privatisation recently. So that's, uh, that's an achievement. That's on um, ABC radio.
2: Did they get cut off pretty quickly?
0: Uh, no, actually, no. Had a bit of a go. I don't know. Maybe she hasn't had time to get acquainted with the issue yet. We'll see what happens in the future if they manage to get on again. But that's something because she. I think she's taken over from John Fane, and John Fane was always quite um, supportive of social housing as opposed to public housing. Mm-hmm. And what else? If people are interested also, Friends of Public Housing Victoria's got a uh, a blog which you can go to have a look at. We'll put it up on the um, City Limits page afterwards, but it's uh, savepublichousing, all one word, .blogspot.com and you'll see a lot of useful information there about public housing.
1: Nice. We're coming to the top of the show, uh, Kevin, if you have any final questions for our guests, Howard and Shane.
0: Well,
2: it was just just that in the, in the budget there was also they, they have now allowed... Uh, to, to remove CGT, capital gains tax, from granny flats if people put a granny flat for their parent or whatever in the backyard. And perhaps we can get back to that next month with Shane because it, it, one of the arguments was that if, if people don't go through the proper processes for it, it can lead to exploitation of older people. and. Uh, and, old and aged abuse, um, but Shane, we haven't really been running out of time to talk about that, but it's still an issue, I, I guess, in a lot of areas.
3: Oh, 100%. We'd, we'd be very worried if uh, people are going to be incentivized economically to, to host uh, elderly relatives, uh, older relatives who you know, may not have really secure rights at all in that situation, uh, maybe exactly as you say, very exposed to, to abuse, yeah,
2: well, it's something. Perhaps we can look at that next month because it's an ongoing, uh, another ongoing problem. Unfortunately,
1: we've come to yes, yeah, uh, we've come to the top of the show. We've we've done uh, an hour of in-depth analysis of the housing situation in Victoria with our guests Howard Mersey from Friends of Public Housing and Shane McGrath from Housing for the Aged Action Group. Thanks for being here, guys.
2: Thanks for having us. That's right. Thanks to both of you and. Um, and Zeb, who didn't say a word, but Zeb, um, welcome to the program and we'll, uh, and, and and Meg, next week's a fourth Wednesday. I, I can't remember what we've got on next week, but if you can remember what think, we're having next week, I okay. can't.
1: It's Yeah, I don't think you can remember because we haven't planned anything, but we'll, we'll get something together. Right,
2: that, <clears throat> that would explain why I couldn't remember what we had because we haven't got anything. Meg, thanks, thank Karina for once again doing a fabulous job keeping us on air.
1: What people might not know about Karina is that she does hours and hours of work, apart from this one hour of listening to us just chat. And we were really grateful, Karina. Thank you so much. Hear,
0: hear. Kevin, should should we be wishing you uh, best of luck for Saturday? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, right.
1: How much have you put on the game?
0: (laughs) Well, I take that as a yes. So anyway, good luck to um, all the Richmond and Geelong supporters. Good to see them both in the grand final. Complete Victorian grand final?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm I'm only hoping it's a really good game, and I think it should be.
0: Yeah, you've been spoiled. You've already got two. But also, Geelong's won three in the last 10 years anyway, so...
2: But I I abandoned Richmond many years ago when they supported apartheid.
0: I really didn't know that.
3: my curse is that I'm a Melbourne supporter. That's my, my real, my most shameful secret is that I'm a Melbourne fan and they have not won a premiership in my lifetime.
2: I, I was alive. See, they won six in my lifetime, but all in a very quick period.
3: Well, that's great. Wow. And they
2: were, for your benefit, they were a great team.
3: <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks for saying, it's very kind.
2: But but that's but that's that's 56 years ago.
0: (laughs) Well, you know it's the curse the curse of Norm Smith (laughs) when they sacked Norm Smith the year I think it was the year after they um, won the grand final in 1965 they sacked Norm Smith.
2: Yeah, 64.
0: That's when the uh, the rot started. Yeah.
2: It was 64, but they um, yeah and then he he went he ended up coaching South Melbourne for a while after that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, you know, these things are real. You had the collie wobbles for, like, 30 years.
2: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and didn't we enjoy them?
0: <laughs> All right, team, thanks for that.
2: Thanks,
1: everybody.
0: Okay, see you. Bye.
1: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.